is Andrew Atherston, um, and um, I'm interested in, in Anglican things, um, Bishop Jewell and friends. My day job, a few friendly faces here, my day job's up at Wycliffe Hall, um, up the Bamboo Road. So nice to welcome you. Did you know that the Bishop Jewell Society has been going since 1947 um, here in Oxford? Um, and it's designed for anyone interested in Anglicanism, um, especially from a, a, an evangelical or Reformation perspective, or interested in hearing some of those perspectives. So come along and join the conversation. Um, Bishop Jewell, well, the, 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 the society used to, uh, when it was first launched, it was going to be called the Coverdale Society, after the famous Bible translator um, in the 1940s. And then they discovered that Coverdale was a Cambridge man. Boom! <laughs> he had to be scratched out of the title pretty quickly. Uh, and finding someone in Oxford, um, so decided to name it the Bishop Jewell Society instead. Um, Lee might tell us a bit about Bishop Jewell later on, so we'll, we'll leave that for the moment. Um, welcome to you. We normally meet um, approximately once a term. Um, so here's the end of Michaelmas, um, and we'll hopefully have good things in store as 2022 begins. Um, but before we have our main speaker for tonight, Vaughan, uh, you're going to introduce Charles, I think. I will, thank you. So Charles, come and join me. That applause was for you rather than for me. <laughs> um, I don't think so. Lovely to have Charles with us. And I'm, before we get on to the meeting, I'd like to introduce Charles to you because many won't have met Charles. But Charles and Trisha, his wife, moved to Oxford quite yeah, recently. Yeah. Um, but you've been in Anglican ministry for many years. Yes. Yes. So, first of all, I'd, I'd love to ask you. Why did you start that? What, what led to you feeling that call and deciding to get ordained in the Church of England or, ah. or offering yourself? Uh, I was terrified. Um, my family were not uh, committed Christians. My father thought ordination was a complete waste of time. But the man who helped me come to faith said that I should consider it. And that really was it. If it had been anybody else, I wouldn't have. Uh, but I, 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 it wouldn't go away. And I, so I did all the sort of process. Um, which you have to do. Um, and it was really a step, at, it, it's a, a process of discovery whether this is truth testing. And of course asking other people and going through the process and all of that, taking a step at a time. And um, it was an interesting journey. It was quite clear to me that that, to my amazement, I was quite young. Uh, that's what God wanted. Um, and in a sense, all the, the people who encouraged me to move from believing to a committed place were members of the Church of England. And it was a place where it gave me room to be a Christian, but uh, to be myself as well. So uh, I was interested in art, history of art. I read it at uh, the other place, as well as law, which I hated, and, um, and took a step at a time, took a step at a time. I think God is very kind. He, you know, he doesn't rush us and say one thing led to another. So where did you train? Trained in Durham, which was mind-blowing to live in the north. I, I'd never been to the north. And, uh, <laughs> well, uh, we laugh. Uh, there is, I think, there's serious issues there. And so I got as far as Nottingham and thought Durham must be around here somewhere. And then the further north I got, I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, this is a really God-forsaken place. And then if you know Durham, you come over the A1, and there you see the cathedral, which has been there for a 1,000 years. Uh, it was mind-blowing. I had to do placements. I did a placement in Liverpool, in Newcastle, and, and so on. That really opened my eyes. And uh, uh, my first job was in London. 
and then really felt I needed to go somewhere else. So we went to Middlesbrough, which was a complete contrast and really helpful. Um, and I learned in those days you could do two curacies. Uh, he was a local man and uh, I learned from him how to meet people where they were in order to lead them on. And that was, and also pastoral care, which was really helpful. Then after Middlesbrough? Uh, called to Darlington. Uh, in again, the, the northeast? Again, the northeast. We felt very happy about that. And again, made all my mistakes as the new vicar in a non-evangelical parish. I've just noticed this, which I think looks really good. Uh, I'd say two things to you. Go to the north, consider the north. Yeah. You're not always looking over people's shoulders. You don't have to worry about other people. So I work with anybody who acknowledged Jesus. And you know, there's lots of room there. And also, it's lonely because everyone thinks uh, Darlington is near, you know, Teesside and Tyneside. It's, the culture is different. <coughs> Christianity came a different way. You don't need a passport, but you need to in culture. It's an entirely different world. Uh, very sobering, but very exciting. No shibboleths. They didn't know the answers. They didn't even know the questions. So that's terrific. And uh, this is great. I, it looks, I wish I'd had it. Just read out for those what is the great book you've got there, Charles? Evangelical <laughs> ministry in a non-evangelical parish. So exciting. Uh, one of the choir later said, you preach like a missionary. And I said, I was. <laughs> was. Uh, a grade one listed building historically, very important. And yet it was a centre of the community. We had 100 funerals in those days, a long time ago now. 100 funerals, 60 baptisms, 40 weddings a year in a parish of 25,000 and then, to our amazement, we were called to central London, not expecting it totally out of the blue. Uh, uh, if you ask me, I say Victoria, actually, it's <coughs> Gravia. A complete contrast. And I got terrified at the interview because, obviously, I speak like a posh southerner. And I said, you don't understand. I've been in the northeast for 15 years. I don't see things the way everybody else does. I've been up there during the miners' strike and all of that stuff. And, uh, but it was really useful. I never drank the Kool-Aid about London. I knew there was a whole other world uh, of lack of opportunity, poverty, and all of that stuff, which was really, really helpful. Thank you, Charles. One final question. Uh, obviously, there are people here at a whole different sort of age of the stages, but some may be thinking about ordination as a possibility. What would you say to people thinking at that stage? Well, maybe. Any, any final word you say to them? Don't rush it. Uh, talk to wise Christians. Um, just take a step at a time. You have to go to a DDO. You have to go through the DDO. process. A director of the Dyson director of Ordinance, but start in your local church. They have to recommend you, and they are very wise. They'll have some wisdom to say. They may say go and do something first or whatever it is. But I would say, take a step at a time. Don't rush it. And if God wants you, he'll make it quite clear. And that's the most important thing, that when the times are tough, you know you've been called. Thank you, Charles, very much indeed. Thank you now. Is Anglicanism biblical? Uh, that's our topic for the afternoon. Just a quick straw poll. Um, how many people here would identify in some form as, as Anglican or members of the Church of England or attending a Church of England church? Okay, about 80% about of us. Um, and uh, maybe the rest of you are coming along just to hear in. Um, if the answer's no, then Anglicanism's not a good um, network to join. Lee, come up the front. Um, thank you for coming all this way. Tell us where you've travelled from 
Oh, is it Today. safe to say that? I've come all the way from the other place, from Cambridge. Brave the snow and the ice. Yeah, it to wasn't too bad, actually. We don't get much snow over there. So. <laughs> but you know Oxford a little bit from before? Yes, indeed. I was an undergraduate here at New College. Anyone from New College? No. Okay. Obviously spiritually impoverished these days. Um, yeah, so I read, I read modern history here. Um, was it St Ebbs? Um, and, and you're currently uh, the director of the Church Society. Yes. Um, what is the Church Society? Oh, thank you for asking. Um, it's just you, you're throwing them up and I can bat them around. Well, yes. There we are. Our job is to equip God's people to live God's word. We have uh, the logo that Andrew has pointed to there. If you count the dots, there are, of course, 39 of them <laughs> because it's... It's a church made up of 39 articles. Um, uh, we're a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. I know that because I've just read it off the banner at the back. Um, and we do all sorts of things to, to do that, to do that contending uh, through publishing. You can see lots of books I brought with me uh, through patronage. So this funny system in the Church of England where every church has a patron so that when the, when the, the rector dies and goes to glory or just below that... If, the bench of bishops or he just moves on somewhere else then it's the patron's job to find the new rector so we have that responsibility in about 130 parishes around the country um, and we we also contend for the faith through prayer and partnerships uh, and conferences and things like that and politics so we have quite a lot of people on general synod okay for their sins so it's a work of super erogation if you know the articles to, to be on synod isn't it Above and beyond the call of duty. I, I hope with all that experience you know the answer to our question that we've <laughs> posed you this afternoon. Is, is Anglicanism biblical? It's a tricky one. We're, we're going to run till half past five. Um, so I'm going to ask Lee to keep an eye on his <clears> clock <throat> to make sure we've got plenty of time for questions yes. before we get to half five. Um, that would be tremendous. Why don't I pray for us and then you can launch in. Thank you, Lord, for this moment together. Uh, this afternoon. Uh, thank you for uh, bringing us a speaker. Uh, thank you for uh, Church of England churches uh, spread around the country. Uh, thank you, Lord, most of all for your words, uh, the, the Bible. Um, and we do now pray, Lord, that you'd help us to, to think clearly and carefully um, about what it might mean to be in the Church of England and to be biblical Christians at the same time. So uh, bless our proceedings now, we ask. Amen. Amen. Okay, so you can tell from listening to my voice that I'm not a posh southerner like Charles. I'm actually from the northeast originally. Uh, so um, if anyone from the northeast, you'll be able to understand me more easy, easily. So this, this question we've got tonight, is Anglicanism biblical? It's an interesting one. So in good Anglican uh, and Oxford style, we need to analyse the question. Imagine this was a question you'd been set in finals or something. You need to analyse the question at the start, don't you? So um, we'll obviously need to know what Anglicanism is. Um, but first, I think we need to think about what does it mean to say that something is biblical? What do we mean by is it biblical? Because people mean different things when they're saying that and are after a different sort of answer, depending on what they mean by the question. So... It's not always as easy as it might sound to determine what we mean by is something biblical. It could be descriptive for a start, um, because in one sense, a whole load of things could be biblical, couldn't they? Um, because they're mentioned in the Bible. So sin is biblical. 
um, murder is biblical because, you know, there's Cain murdering Abel. Uh, war is biblical. Incest is biblical. Genocide, lying is biblical. They're, they're all in the Bible. On the other hand, Netflix is not in the Bible. I think, is that right? Um, and uh, neither is Starbucks. Uh, you can tell all your friends uh, after this meeting tonight that I've, I've said that subfusk and final exams are not biblical. So if you're interested in only doing things that are biblical, maybe you don't need to do that. So in this descriptive sense, uh, things like biblical marriage, well, that would include King Solomon marrying 700 wives, wouldn't it? So is it biblical to marry 700 wives? Yes, it is. See 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3. But that's not what we normally mean, I don't think, is it? By biblical marriage. So the question, is Anglican, Anglicanism biblical, is probably not this kind of question, a descriptive question. Anglicanism, whatever that is, and we will get to that, is not described and narrated in the Bible as such. I'm not even sure that England is mentioned in the Bible, never mind the Church of England, though my RE teacher at school was pretty convinced that Tarshish in the Old Testament was the British Empire, but I digress. Um, what we're really asking um, tonight is, is, is something else. It's, it's more like whether God approves of something or not. Does the God of Scripture <coughs> approve of Anglicanism? And even that's not really straightforward in some ways, because when we ask about the God of the Bible or the Bible itself, his unerring word, approving of something, that's traditionally been taken in two different ways. So we ask, is this thing, whatever we're talking about, is this thing biblical? That could mean first that everything about it is positively commanded in the Bible, by the Bible. Or it might mean, second, that this thing is not repugnant to or contradictory to the Bible, but in harmony with its principles and its precepts. The first idea there is known as the regulative principle, that God has commanded uh, church services or church government to be regulated and performed in a particular way. <coughs> And anything else is prohibited because it's not expressly commanded in the Bible or logically implied. That's the regulative principle. Prohibited if not commanded. And on the other side, we have this second idea that's sometimes known as the normative principle. Not because it was invented by Norman, but this is more about if it's not prohibited in Scripture, it's permitted as long as it's agreeable to the peace and unity of the church. So scripture establishes norms and standards, but it doesn't regulate everything in explicit, minute detail or forbid things that it doesn't mention. The normative principle, permitted if not prohibited or unhelpful. Now, let's not get hung up on the terminology. I often forget which of these is which um, and what, you know, the terminology can be a bit confusing sometimes. Um, but basically, is it biblical? We could mean descriptive, regulative 
or normative. So let's look first at that regulative principle. It sounds good, doesn't it? If it's not commanded by the Bible, then it's out. It's prohibited. If God didn't say do it, then don't do it. Simples. That's pretty straightforward. So the Bible doesn't say that we should split our nation into geographical units called parishes and elect a parochial church council and eventually a general synod. No, not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that we should set up theological colleges to train ministers of the gospel or have church buildings like this one. It doesn't say we should meet on Sunday morning at 10 or at 11. It doesn't say we should have a midweek prayer meeting or a small group. The Bible doesn't say we should use electric lights as we are today or electric guitars or keyboards in church, which some of you may quite approve of uh, not having those things in church. So all of those things, they are unbiblical. They're, I see the Oriole bunch are all nodding their heads at that point. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's great to have Peter from Oriel, that great Anglican college of, uh, that great Anglican Cardinal Newman. Um, but where were we? Yes, we were saying that all these things are prohibited, of course, because they're not commanded explicitly in the Bible. So some holding to this principle, the, the regulative principle, have said that we shouldn't have musical instruments in church at all, because the New Testament does not command them. And yes, you know that the, some of the Psalms do mention musical instruments but that of course is all done away with now because it was all part of the ceremonial law that's what they would say um, whether that's true or not I will leave you to discuss later and perhaps we can ask some questions about it the um, the fellowship of independent evangelical churches is a, is a great organization they have set up a really good legal firm to advise their members on legalities such as drawing up a church constitution, sorting out property law and good governance structures and things like that. That's unbiblical too, because I don't remember that coming up in the pastoral epistles. And Jesus didn't say much positive about lawyers, did he? Not that I can remember anyway. Besides, shouldn't we just trust God and let the spirit guide us rather than getting legal advice on things? Well, these are not all reductio ad absurdum sorts of arguments, but they are, to my mind, some real problems with the regulative principle here. I think it's good to do the things that God has expressly commanded. Of course, that scripture tells us as a whole, scripture tells us are required. But to rule out everything else as prohibited, it's probably going a step too far, isn't it? And it treats the Bible more like a, a sort of book of flats, ancient rules than a living word from a living God. So what's the alternative? Over to Norman, the normative principle, which is, remember, that whatever is not prohibited in Scripture is permitted, as long as it's agreeable to the peace and unity of the church and as long as it's not unhelpful. Remember the difference? The regulative principle is that whatever is not commanded is prohibited. And the normative principle is that whatever is not prohibited is permitted. Note that last word, of course, it's important. It gives us freedom to apply things differently in different circumstances. Um, and also the freedom not to judge other churches if they're not exactly the same as ours. 
whatever is not prohibited is permitted. It's possible, but it's not necessarily going to always be the wisest or the best thing to do in every circumstance. For instance, Anglican robes might be permissible and wise in some contexts, but maybe not in others. I'm not wearing mine right now, but uh, uh, Vaughan has been known to do so. See him there on the screen somewhere over on the left, I think. That's you, isn't it? Isn't he? Has been known to, to wear his good choir robes. And I did so recently when I led choral evensong at Pembroke College in the other place recently. Uh, Facebook is not prohibited in the Bible, but it's also not always the wisest thing, is it? Uh, which New College CU obviously agree with, because I liked their Facebook page many years ago, but nothing ever seems to happen on it. Um, so maybe they decided it wasn't biblical. When we talk about this, uh, this normative principle of biblicalness, we're really asking whether a certain thing is in harmony with the principles and precepts that are positively put forward by the Bible. You can tell I'm an evangelical, lots of P's in that sentence. All those points beginning with P. Does this thing, whatever it is we're talking about, follow the principles taught in the Bible and harmonise with them? Or does it obey the precepts which are explicitly preached by the Bible? So I'm afraid that on this definition, sorry, subfusk and final exams are actually entirely biblical. If they're commanded by Jew authorities, I'm afraid there is little hope for making a biblical case against them. But the big question, of course, is not whether subfusk or Facebook or any of those things are biblical, but is Anglicanism biblical? But we needed to get some of those philosophical uh, taxonomies in place first as we discuss what that means. What is Anglicanism? I hear you cry. Well, we could go on all day about the various different ways in which people have tried to define Anglicanism. I think it's safest to look at Anglican doctrine and Anglican practice in our foundational formularies. Anglican doctrine is defined by Canon A5 in the Church of England's Canon Law. It's part of the law of the land. And what does that canon say? It says the doctrine of the Church of England is grounded in the Holy Scriptures and in such teachings of the ancient fathers and councils of the church as are agreeable to the said scriptures. In particular, such doctrine is to be found in the 39 Articles of Religion, the Book of Common Prayer and the Ordinal. So Anglican doctrine, according to this definition, it starts with scripture. It starts with the Bible. It makes scripture supreme, even over the traditional teachings of the early church fathers and the ecumenical councils. Because you'll notice we do agree with the, with the ancient councils, but only as they are agreeable to the said scriptures. So the scriptures are supreme. So far, so biblical, I would say. Scripture is the source and summit of authority in the Church of England. The Bible is our basis. And canon law as a whole seems to be very keen to make sure that nothing is, as it puts it, repugnant to the word of God, but rather agreeable to the said scriptures. And it says here that our doctrine can be found particularly in the 39 articles, the Book of Common Prayer and the Ordinal, the services for the ordination of ministers. This is where Anglicanism is expressed. So if we ask, is Anglicanism biblical? 
we're asking whether these documents are biblical. They're not mentioned in the Bible, but are they in harmony with the positive teaching of the Bible? Does the God of the Bible himself approve of them? Are they redolent with divine revelation and submissive to that revelation as a word from God himself? Well, let's see. Let's look at them, shall we? Let's go through these uh, four pillars of Anglicanism. The 39 Articles, an Anglican doctrinal basis or confession of faith, says various things about the Bible. Article 6 says that scripture contains all things necessary for salvation. It is sufficient. And if something is not read in scripture or can't be proved by scripture, then it must not be required as an article of the faith. Article 8 says that the creeds are good, but only because they may be proved by most certain warrants of Holy Scripture. The articles also tell us that we must receive God's promises in such wise as they be generally set forth to us in Holy Scripture. And in our doings, that will of God is to be followed, which we have expressly declared to us in the word of God. Article, anyone know? 17. Bonus points at the front here. Well done. Article 17. They also say the visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments be duly administered according to Christ's ordinance in all things that are necessary and requisite to the same. Article 20 says it is lawful. Sorry, it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. That's Anglicanism. You mustn't do anything, ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. Neither may it so expound one place of scripture that it be repugnant to another. Wherefore, although the church is a witness and a keeper of holy writ, yet as it ought not to decree anything against the same, so besides the same, ought it not to enforce anything to be believed for necessity of salvation. In other words, an Anglican church must not prescribe anything which is not in harmony with Scripture. And Scripture itself is always in harmony with itself. It doesn't contradict itself in the Old or the New Testaments because the God whose word it is does not contradict himself. He is a consistent and a coherent God. Various practices are rejected in the articles, sorry, Aureal, such as purgatory, adoration of images and relics and the invocation of saints, Article 22, or having Latin services in an English-speaking church, Article 24. Transubstantiation is prohibited, Article 28. Why? Because all of these things are, the articles tell us, repugnant to the word of God. Now, they do also say that it's not necessary that traditions and ceremonies be in all places one and utterly alike, Article 34, for at all times they have been diverse and may be changed according to the diversities of countries, times and men's manners. That's why the Anglican Communion looks very different in different parts of the world and things can be different in one church in Oxford to the next to the next, as long as, the article says, 
nothing be ordained against God's word. That's really clear, isn't it? All the way through the articles. The articles seem very biblical to me. What about the prayer book then? The second of those formularies. What about the prayer book? Um, <clears throat> anybody use the prayer book regularly in their churches? Yeah, and chapels as well. Yeah, good. Um, the, the preface to the Book of Common Prayer concerning the service of the church. Do you ever read that when you get bored in the service? You, you flick to the front and just read the preface or flick to the back and just look, read through the 39 articles. I used to do that during the sermons sometimes. Not at St. Ebbs, but um, <laughs> when I was growing up. Um, <clears throat> the, the preface says, um, well, it talks about the very pure word of God, the Holy Scriptures. And ministers are encouraged to read and meditate upon God's word. The order for the visitation of the sick in the Book of Common Prayer contains these words. God, who has written thy holy word for our learning. See, the Bible is God's holy word written for our learning. And that view is kind of baked into all of the Book of Common Prayer's services. Such language is, is found throughout uh, the services and also in the collects as well. You might see that uh, in some of the collects for Advent, for example. In the Book of Common Prayer communion service, the minister prays, We are taught by thy holy word that the hearts of kings are in thy rule. They affirm that it is God who, by thy holy apostle, has taught us to make prayers for all men. Quoting from Proverbs 21, 1 Timothy 2. Thus, the Bible is seen as God's word through which he teaches us, his people, even now, though the human authorship of scripture is also acknowledged in that because it's the Holy Apostle who has taught us or God through the Holy Apostle teaches us. The prayer that's known as the litany prays that God will illuminate all bishops, priests and deacons with true knowledge and understanding of thy word and that both by their preaching and living, they may set it forth. That's your job, according to the BCP. One of the prayers in the, the prayer book which expresses this biblical focus of Anglicanism so well is the so-called prayer for the church militant. Prayer for the church militant in the communion service. Three times in this prayer, the foundational role of the word of God in our life together is reiterated. The minister asks God to grant that all they that do confess thy holy name may agree in the truth of thy holy word and live in unity and godly love. Next, the congregation asks God to give grace, O heavenly father, to all bishops and curates that they may both by their life and doctrine Set forth thy true and lively word and rightly and administer thy holy sacraments. Finally, this is all in one prayer. Uh, we pray for ourselves um, even before we pray for those who are sick or in any kind of need. We pray and to all thy people give thy heavenly grace and especially to this congregation here present that with meek heart and due reverence they may hear and receive thy holy word. Truly serving thee in holiness and righteousness all the days 
of our lives. The repetition, therefore, in this one prayer about God's word is striking and it is designed to make an impact on us and to teach us what true godliness and a life following Christ is all about. And that is why the prayer book prescribes a healthy and robust diet of Bible reading and preaching for every church. As Jim Packer, the celebrated author of Knowing God, rightly said, the Anglicanism of the 1662 prayer book, with its hundred verses a day lectionary, its monthly passage through the Psalter, its Bible crammed daily services and its high valuation of expository preaching, is a Bible-reading, Bible-loving, Bible-believing faith. You know, if you followed all of the set readings in the BCP that it lays down, you'd get through the whole Bible at a fairly rapid pace. This exceeds the expectations of every other church, whether Rome or Wittenberg or even Geneva. So during the Reformation, the Anglican Church became the Bible-hearing church par excellence. Because Thomas Cranmer wanted all people, not just the chosen few locked away in monasteries, to be able to ruminate and meditate on Holy Scripture and for it to change their hearts and their everyday lives. The BCP was designed, he said, so that the people, by daily hearing of Holy Scripture read in the church, might continually profit more and more in the knowledge of God and be the more inflamed with the love of his true religion. Your heart will be inflamed if you hear God's word daily. So I don't know about you, but I think the prayer book sounds like it's pretty biblical, doesn't it? What about the ordinal, the third of those formularies that I I mentioned before, the ordinal Uh, which you can find out about in this excellent little book by uh, Dr Andrew Atherston of Wycliffe Hall. Um, The the ordinal is the services used to ordain new ministers. Uh, In that uh, one of those services, the congregation pray that we, as we're here, gathered to see these ordinations, may we have grace to hear and receive what they, the newly ordained presbyters, shall deliver out of thy most holy word. Uh, or agreeable to the same as the means of our salvation. Excuse me. Um, The ministers themselves are therefore encouraged to, I quote, drive away all erroneous and strange doctrines contrary to God's word. Well, we might wish that that were indeed happening a little bit more than it does, but it is a key part of what an authentic Anglican minister is supposed to do according to this official description. Drive away erroneous doctrine. Uh, during the Reformation, Thomas Cranmer and the, uh, the other reformers also produced the homilies of the Church of England. These are official sermons referred to in the, the articles, uh, Article 35, as containing godly and wholesome doctrine which is uh, most useful for congregations to hear at this present time. Uh, Church Society have just published this brand new modernised edition of the homilies, which you can see over there if you'd like to, uh, to actually read these homilies rather than just leaving them on a shelf in a dusty old book that no one's ever seen for 200 years. Um, one of the homilies is appropriately titled 
and information for them which take offence at certain places of the Holy Scripture. And in that homily, it says, the scriptures were written by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost and are the word of the living God, his infallible word. Reformation Anglican doctrine is that the Bible is infallible. There's even a case, I think, to be made for an authentically Anglican doctrine, not only of infallibility, but even of the inerrancy of the Bible. Article 21 reminds us, of course, that alongside erring and errant general counsels, the Holy Scripture itself is alone to be considered as finally trustworthy because it cannot lead us astray. It is unerring, inerrant. The homilies begin with scripture by showing people that the way to know God and what he wants from us is to go back to the scriptures, which they call the food of the soul. It's a beautiful phrase. And this doctrine is presented to us as a universal or Catholic small c doctrine with their big names from the early church, such as Chrysostom and Augustine, brought in to convince us of its ancient credentials. It is not novel in Christian history to turn to the Bible, despite the objections of those who claim it is too difficult for ordinary churchgoers to understand. So as the uh, the first homily itself says, what excuse shall we therefore make at the last day before Christ if we delight to read or hear human fantasies and inventions more than his most holy gospel? And we'll find no time to do that which chiefly above all things we should do. So the homilies, they seem pretty biblical, don't they? Don't you think? Zealously biblical, you might say. Uh, Thomas Cranmer, a a Cambridge man, I should just point out, who wrote this homily, um, of course made in Cambridge, burned in Oxford, like many of the reformers, Um, The guy who wrote this homily was one of the prime architects of Anglicanism. In his other works, he revered scripture as God's own words, quote. We might even quote uh, Richard Hooker, a supposedly quintessential Anglican, was equally clear that the Bible itself is the word of God and that we ought to be reading that so that people can engage with it uh, on a Sunday morning, for example. Further back, St. Augustine stated that what the Bible says, God says, thus indicating that this is, in fact, just the classic Christian position to take on Scripture. It has its origins in Scripture itself, naturally. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God spoke through the prophets. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed. Ultimately, as Christians that is, disciples of Christ, we acknowledge the Bible as our authority simply because that is what Christ himself did. That's why I believe the Bible, because Jesus believed the Bible. The definitive answer in any debate for the Lord Jesus was always, have you not read what God said? So then, when scripture is read out in our meetings... Committed Anglicans need have no qualms of theological conscience 
as they liturgically affirm, this is the word of the Lord. We mean it. We believe it. Okay, so what am I saying? I'm saying that in its canon law, in its primary doctrinal statement, in its authoritative prayer book, in its ordination services, and in its official sermons, the Church of England is thoroughly biblical. It explicitly submits to Scripture as sufficient and supreme. It prays for people to receive and live by biblical truth. The Bible is to be read and reread and preached and not contradicted. This alone can help us to live in unity and godly love as a church and inflame our hearts with love for God and for our neighbours. So Anglicanism purports to be biblical and is absolutely saturated with the Bible as no less an authority than Bishop Jewell himself says in his great book, The Apology of the Church of England. He's not saying sorry, it's a defence of the Church of England. He says, we refer all our controversies unto the Holy Scriptures because they be the foundations of the prophets and apostles whereupon is built the church of God, that they shall be, they, sorry, that they be the very sure and infallible rule whereby all ecclesiastical doctrine ought to be called to account since God speaketh to you most clearly by his own mouth in the scriptures. Bishop Jewell there from Corpus Christi, Oxford. But there may be many questions, of course, after that about specific doctrines, specific Anglican doctrines. Um, Anglicans believe in the Trinity. Is that biblical? We could ask that question. Anglicans have bishops. Is episcopacy biblical? We baptise infants. Is pedo-baptism biblical? We have prayer books and a global Anglican communion. Are they biblical? There's no end of questions we could ask like that, and each one could well be the subject for another dual society meeting, a talk on its own. But before I close, I want to address just one final particular issue, which may lie behind the question, is Anglicanism biblical for some people? Anglicanism cannot be biblical, some people say, because, well, there are dodgy bishops. There are dodgy ministers. And aren't there many who claim to be loyal Anglicans, but who promote a faith which is wildly at odds with the reformed and evangelical doctrine of the 39 articles, the Book of Common Prayer, the Ordinal and those homilies? Well, sadly, that is all too true. Yes, there are such people. But it is also exactly what one would expect from reading the Bible itself and from reading the articles, the prayer book and the ordinal. Both Acts and the pastoral epistles in the Bible warn us that false teaching will spring up in the church even from amongst our own number. If that was the case in churches that had been pastored by the Apostle Paul with elders who had been trained by Paul himself, why would we expect any different 
in any church or denomination today? Why would we expect churches today to be entirely pure and free from those sorts of difficulties? Wolves love sheep. So wherever sheep go, there's going to be some wolves. The 39 articles also lead us to expect these kind of imposters. Remember Article 26? In the visible church, the evil be ever mingled with the good. And sometimes the evil have chief authority in the ministration of the word and sacraments. That's quite a shocking second sentence, isn't it, actually? Nevertheless, it appertaineth to the discipline of the church that inquiry be made of evil ministers and that they be accused by those that have knowledge of their offences and finally being found guilty by just judgment be deposed. So Anglicanism, I think, is biblical in its expectation that there will be false teachers, even sometimes lamentably in prominent positions. And Anglicanism is also biblical in its insistence here that this must be carefully looked into and discipline must be applied when needed. The Reverend Dodgy in a dog collar should be deposed. Now, I've written a whole book on uh, contending for the gospel and against false teaching, examining what the Bible says about how we do that in the Church of England today. It's called Fight Valiantly. And uh, Vaughan says nice things about it on the inside. So I thought um, I would bring a few copies to give away tonight. So if you'd like a free copy of Fight Valiantly, they're all by the door. Not all the books are free, but that one is. So if you'd like a free copy of that one to find out more about what the Bible says about how to handle false teaching and how we apply that today in our own context in the Church of England, please do take one. I don't want to spoil the book for you too much, uh, but let me say this. It is possible to be an Anglican and to differentiate yourself visibly from such false teaching without having to leave the Church of England or start a new denomination or something like that. Indeed, Anglicanism, as I've described it tonight in its foundational constitution, encourages you to do so. The Book of Common Prayer itself prays that the false teaching would be refuted and countered. It, the ordinal, it, it commands ministers, it binds ministers to banish and drive away this false teaching. We must contend for the gospel, but we must contend for the gospel in biblical ways and not with the weapons of the world or merely by using secular strategies and the tactics of culture war. More in the book if you want to follow that up. So in conclusion tonight, in conclusion, is Anglicanism biblical? Basically, yes, is what I'm saying. I hope that was clear. Basically, yes. It is not the only way to be a biblical Christian. Some of my best friends are Baptists and Presbyterians, after all. I don't want to claim too much for the Anglican way. But I do not think that zealous evangelical believers need have any qualms of conscience about committing themselves to the Church of England and to the thousands of churches in every village, town and city which it has in this country and indeed in Anglican denominations around the globe. They continue to need the gospel 
The Church of England has an honoured place in the evangelisation of this nation and many others and continues to be used by God to reach lost sinners like us for Christ. Long may that continue for the glory of God and the good of England and the world. Amen. Amen. Lee, thank you very much. Typically clear and provocative. Uh, we've got um, six, six or seven minutes or so. You're happy to have yeah. questions from the floor? Sure. And we see some right in the middle. Far, far away. Yeah. Uh, yes, thank, thank you very much for the talk. And I would uh, agree with you that uh, you know, the 39 articles in the prayer book are a great way to sort of protect the Anglican Church, keep it biblical, protect it from error. But is there something not a bit disingenuous when most evangelical churches, Anglican evangelical churches, are not really using the articles or the prayer book. You can go on this sort of what we believe page on some of the evangelical <coughs> Anglican churches, and they don't have the 39 articles, they don't have the generics or statements of faith. And you can go to their services, and they're not using the prayer book. And where you find the prayer book are not in these sort of evangelical churches. So mm. what would you say to that? You can sort of you can speak of the praises of, yes, the prayer book's great, the 39 articles are great. Yes. But these churches are not using these things and we're more like maybe an in independent evangelical church. Thank you. That's a great question. Thank you. Um, well, I think it's possible, isn't it, on your What We Believe page on a website to put things in a way that might be... Um, clear to an outsider. So you wouldn't necessarily want to say, we believe in these 39 points um, on your What We Believe page. I would hope that the What We Believe page on any evangelical church's website in the Church of England would be in harmony with the 39 articles and that those ministers themselves, when they took the Declaration of Assent, made the Declaration of Assent and said that this is the inheritance of faith that they want to proclaim afresh in this generation, that they would be loyal to that in their preaching and in the ways that they led the church. So I think it's possible that we've forgotten what the actual articles are, but we can still be in harmony with those, I hope. Um, but I, I want to plead for us to go back to those sources again. That's why we've produced books and a commentary on the articles and things like that in order to, you know, if we don't use them, we'll lose them. Um, so we've got to use these things and go back to them, but in the right context. Not everyone would necessarily want that or know what they are if we did refer to them. Uh, and the prayer book being used as well. Yes, and of course the Church of England has moved away from the prayer book in many ways because we have new liturgies now. Um, I, I still love going to BCP evening prayer services, which I do very regularly in Cambridge. Um, and I think the services that we use today ought to at least be in harmony and consonant with that same theology. It's where the new liturgies have moved away from the theology of the prayer book that I get problems, not necessarily that we need to be an antiquarian society with the these and the thys and the thous as they were in the prayer book, but the theology and the practice needs to be still resonant with the prayer book. Thank you. So in the corner. church contend against um, archbishops who endorse Sharia and who lock down? Yeah. Uh, well, I think Article 26 told us these things should be carefully looked into. So they ought to be contending against those things carefully um, and with great diligence, especially if it's somebody in chief ministration of the word and sacraments, as the article put it, if it's a bishop or an archbishop. Um, there is a general lack of discipline in the Church of England at the moment. 
discipline has held in some high-profile cases. In the whole yes. In every sphere. Ha it has held in some places, and sometimes church discipline by its nature happens behind the scenes, and we don't hear about it in the press, and I think that's probably a good thing in many cases. But uh, I would agree with you that a, a discipline needs to be more rigorously and carefully uh, enforced and looked into. And the, it's being looked into by General Synod at the moment because the whole clergy discipline measure um, has lamentably failed and needs to be looked at again in you know, a root and branch reform. Thank you. Uh, please, yeah. Um, I think from someone who only very recently called himself an Anglican, uh, one of the things that deters me and deters a lot of people who I consider to be very wise Christians is that there seems to be almost universally, even in evangelical churches, a complete lack of conviction when it comes to these conservative points. As you can, you know, you can view and say, really? society X believes that women can't be priests, but um, <coughs> there's absolutely no boldness in going forward and saying this. There's no opposing the fact that every company, every organisation, every political party in this country, and pretty much all of the churches in this country support entirely anti-biblical morals and what, yes. what is now considered conservative evangelical so to speak, a hundred years ago was virgin on liberal I mean we've been <laughs> so far away yes. from biblical yes. moral Christianity mm. and the thing that deters me most from the Church of England is I look at it and I think as do many of my friends and think actually you can find some independent churches that are pretty bold but you don't find that in well, I would say I want, I want to encourage um, any evangelical Anglican friends that you know to join maybe a society which contends together for these things. I mean, that's what church side is for. All these little dots are actually people getting together to do these things together that we can't do on our own or that we may not feel brave enough to do on our own. We get together and do them um, because there's, there's safety in numbers, but also encouragement and a spur. So we need to do these things within things like church society. That's what we're here for not to take over from what local churches are doing, but to stand behind and strengthen and help them as they do that work. And we do need people to put their head above the parapet more. I think, to be honest, uh, I, to be frank, I think people are doing that a little bit more now than they were 10, 20 years ago on, on some major issues. And there's a lot more cross-party cooperation amongst evangelicals um, within the Church of England on those conservative issues. But you're right, there may have been something of a slippage as to what conservative means in the past. We're going to try and squeeze in one more before we stop. I'm going to go, I'm going to go right to the back row and, and um, Lee, Lee will be here at the end with some um, questions. Around. Come, yes. come and um, interrogate him at the front. But f last question from the back. Well, yeah, I mean, ultimately, we, need, we get what, what is right and wrong from God's word. We want to know what God thinks about what's right and wrong, because we can come up with all our own ideas about what's right and wrong. And society does all the time. I mean, some things that society tells us nowadays are wrong are actually right by God's word and vice versa. So we really want a definitive view. So we need God's word. And if the Church of England preaches and teaches and reads God's word, then the society as a whole that we live in will hear the truth of what is right and wrong. But otherwise, we're just going to get the potted wisdom of the world 
and the BBC, the world, the press and the devil, um, as they say. So, yeah, we need to go back to God's word again and again. The bell is gone, I'm afraid, um, for 5.30 and uh, other evening activities. Um, Lee, thank you so much for coming along. Can I do a giveaway quickly? Please do. I've got two copies of Bishop Jewell's work on the Apology of the Church of England to give away to one person who can tell me what college he was at. Very good. You come and get that one from me. And the other one who can tell me where George Whitfield was at college. Nobody knows. I'll give it to Vaughan and he can decide because he knew that uh, Whitfield was at Pembroke. Well done. Sorry. There you go. Vaughan, are you going to close the meeting for us? Yeah. I wonder, Andy, if we can make sure there's a bit of paper at the end, at the back there. And if you um, want to make sure that when we put on, God willing, another event next term, and we'll see about the summer, if you want to make sure you get a direct email telling you about it, just put your name on the bit of paper that Andy's putting on the table by the door. Otherwise, we'll advertise in the same kind of ways as we have now. But that's a way of ensuring you hear about it. And uh, Do spread the word, tell your friends. Thanks again, Lee. Let me pray as we close. Loving Father, thank you very much for the Church of England. And for those men and women down the ages who stood firmly for truth, in some cases died for it, that gospel witness might be preserved and proclaimed in and through the Church of England. We pray for your mercy and your blessing on the Church of England today. The strength to stand for truth and to resist error. (coughs) And for your Holy Spirit to bless its witness so that others would hear of Christ and come to know him. For the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.